Our scripture lesson today is taken from the first chapter of the book of Acts. This is after the ascension of Christ, before the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. Then the eleven disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 people and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. And let another take his position of overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us throughout the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Breathe on us, breath of God, till we are wholly thine, until this earthly part of us glows with thy fire divine. In the name of Christ, amen. In one of Broadway's longest-running musicals, Chicago, a quiet, self-effacing character named Amos Hart, the husband of celebrity inmate Roxy Hart, sings a lament whose title he uses to describe himself, Mr. Cellophane. 
If someone stood up in a crowd and raised his voice up way out loud and waved his arm and shook his leg, you'd notice him. If someone in the movie show yelled, fire in the second row, the whole place is a powder keg, you'd notice him. And even without clucking like a hen, everyone gets noticed now and then. Unless, of course, that person, it should be invisible, inconsequential, me. Cellophane. Mr. Cellophane. Should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane. Because you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know my name. Suppose you was a little cat residing in a person's flat who fed you fish and scratched your ears. You'd notice him. Suppose you was a woman wed and sleeping in a double bed beside one man for seven years. You'd notice him. A human being's made of more than air. With all that bulk, you're bound to see him there unless that human being next to you is unimpressive, undistinguished, you know who. Most of the biblical characters with whom we've spent time this summer are people whom, even if we have read our Bible cover to cover, we have likely not noticed. Lot's wife, Paltiel, Orpah, Huldah, the centurion on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, even if one of one or two of these characters ring a bell for us, I doubt any of us will be familiar with the final two characters in this series, Joseph called Barsabbas and the mother of Rufus. Joseph is in fact so obscure, so invisible and cellophanish that even Luke, the writer of the book of Acts in which Joseph appears, seems confused about his name. At first, Luke refers to him as Joseph, of which there are many in the Bible. Then Luke adds the descriptor Barsabbas, which can mean son of Saba, son of an oath, son of an old man, son of conversion, or son of quiet. Finally, Luke tells us that Joseph is also known as, a.k.a., Justice. But Justice is simply a surname, a family name, a last name, like Jones or Smith or Smulikoff. Not much help in letting us see this particular Joseph as an independent human being, Mr. Cellophane. Mr. Cellophane. In fact, there is so little in this text about Joseph that we're left to carefully reading the text for clues about him and then using our imagination and common sense to move him from being a stick figure to at least being an etching in whom we might see some of our own characteristics and experiences of God. In brief, after Judas' betrayal of Jesus that led directly to Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, the original disciples, who are now called apostles, 
gather to find someone to replace Judas. So they can be restored to their full number of 12 modeled on the 12 tribes of Israel. These apostles are in that period between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which will empower them for the preaching and teaching and healing on which they are about to embark and which will lead the church to explosive growth in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Now, as is often the case with matters apostolic, Peter takes the lead in selecting the twelfth apostle. He calls the meeting to order with a line from Psalm 109, let another take Judas' place as overseer. The selection process is open and transparent, witnessed by over 120 people. All 11 apostles are present. It's not a backroom deal in a smoke-filled room. Peter announces criteria for the nominees for the position. The 12th apostle must be someone who, like the other 11, has been with Jesus from the time that he was baptized until the time he was put to death. And it must be someone who, like them, has witnessed an appearance of the risen Christ and who therefore is poised to become a witness to his resurrection. Clearly, this hiring was to occur from within. Peter puts forward two names, both of whom appear qualified, Matthias, and Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Now, it is unclear whether Peter has personally chosen the nominees or whether the group has nominated them, but when it comes time for the election, two names are on the ballot. The 11 apostles then enter a period of prayer, what we might call spiritual discernment, Lord, you know everyone's heart, they pray. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. It is clear that the apostles believe that God makes the final choice concerning who will be the twelfth apostle. And that their task is to discern and ratify that choice. In the Presbyterian Church, 2,000 years later, we are still following this same process. Whenever we are selecting a pastor or an associate pastor, God chooses. We discern and ratify. As soon as they fishing, as soon as they finish asking God to show them the chosen candidate, they lift their heads up from prayer. They look around. And then something happens that I have always thought was very odd. They cast lots. They cast lots to try to determine who's going to be the twelfth disciple. Has God been silent? Has God not answered their prayer? Are they confused, conflicted, unclear about the choice before them? Are they faced with two highly qualified candidates Or are they faced with two candidates that are both maybe a little bit lacking? 
It has always provided me with a little relief to see that even in biblical times, prayer doesn't always reveal an immediate answer. Because that is a way that we often experience prayer when we are facing a major decision. College or military service, marriage or graduate school, accept this new position or remain in the position I'm in, continue with treatment or enter hospice. For everything there is a season, declares the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and for every and a time for every matter under heaven. It appears that we are not alone among those for whom seasons and times are not always obvious. But by the same token, it seems that for the eleven disciples to cast lots, to draw straws, to roll the dice, to flip a coin, to decide who's going to be the twelfth apostle is as shallow as betting on horses or selecting a team for March Madness. Now, fortunately, commentators on this matter come to our rescue. Most point out that casting lots has a long and distinguished history in the Bible as a way of discerning God's will. Moses' brother Aaron, the twelve tribes of Israel, the prophet Micah, even the sailors who found Jonah asleep on their stormy ship all cast lots as a way of discerning the will of God. And all were accurate. So however seemingly odd this process, when the lots are cast, the lot falls on Matthias and he becomes the twelfth apostle. Joseph, son of Barsabbas, also known as Justice, is never again mentioned in Scripture, Mr. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should have been my name, because you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. So what do we make of this Joseph called Barsabbas, this son of quiet, this Mr. Cellophane? Let's think about this for a minute. It may be that Joseph was not as obscure as his disappearance from Scripture would lead us to believe. In early Christian tradition, it is said that Joseph went on to become bishop of Eleutheropolis, where he died a martyr and was eventually elevated to the status of a saint. Perhaps that tradition reveals that we have a deep human need to believe that in the end, no one really loses, that every story turns out well, that every life is important, even if that we are, even if we are not chosen 
finish second, or don't place at all, our lives still have significance. Perhaps we share with early Christian writers a deeply human thirst to believe that we are noticed. On the other hand, perhaps Joseph is a reminder that at the end of the day, the things we think we might want, the things we consider, the things for which we put forth our names or for which we campaign are ultimately beyond our control. There was to be, after all, only one twelfth disciple. To make it more personal, perhaps the person with whom we want to be in relationship is not, after all, the person with whom God intends us to walk and talk and keep sweet counsel. Perhaps the family matter we want settled one way in our time frame is not the way or the time frame in which God intends to settle the matter. Perhaps the acceptance we seek to that graduate program, that appointment, the election we seek to that office is not what the Holy One has in mind for us. It is worth noting that while Joseph never again appears in Scripture, neither does Matthias, the one chosen to be the twelfth disciple. They both disappear into the crowd of history, invisible, but not necessarily insignificant. After the selection is made, the pace of the New Testament picks up. The gift of the Spirit is given at Pentecost. Explosive growth occurs throughout the church, preaching, teaching, healing, the sharing of goods, admissions of gen- admission of Gentiles into the faith without requiring their conversion into Judaism, the missionary journeys of Paul, the spread of Christianity from its base in Judaism throughout the Greco-Roman world geographically, politically, and culturally. In all this activity, historic people come to the fore. We read about them in Sunday school. Stephen and Peter and Paul, Lydia and Dorcas, giants of the earth, giants of the faith. But for every one of these giants, for every martyr and missionary, there are dozens, thousands of quiet, humble saints. Mr. and Mrs. Cellophanes, who keep the church going in mission, education, worship, life together. Remember, one meaning of Barsabbas is son of quiet. In some of the classes I've taught at Westminster, I have shared with you the story of Jeanette Williams. When I moved to Iowa in 1990, she was a long-retired school teacher who every Saturday morning before the church served communion the next day on Sunday would drive her rusted 
yellow Oldsmobile to the Hy-Vee grocery store, buy bread and grape juice, drive to the church, spread them across the communion table, cover the elements with cellophane, and then return the next day to partake herself. Jeanette Williams had never married. She had no children. She had outlived her family. She lived alone in a small apartment next door to the least used funeral home in town. When I began my service in her church, she was nearly 90, and she had been preparing the communion elements for nearly 50 years. But her memory was beginning to fade. And her driving that yellow Oldsmobile across white ice made those of us in the church concerned. So we asked her if we could provide her with an assistant, and she agreed. And we held a lunch in her honor of decades of service after one of the services. And when she arrived at the lunch, she couldn't remember why she was there. And she certainly couldn't understand why she was to sit at the head table. A few days later, when the newly recruited assistant went to her apartment to be trained, Jeanette Williams opened her cedar chest and she pulled out about a dozen leather-bound journals, some with yellowed pages. Each page of each journal was dedicated to a Sunday on which she had prepared communion. April 3, 1955. Three loaves of bread, 72 cents. Two cans of grape juice, 30 cents. 208 people served. Pastor presiding, Dr. Ted Lilly. Elders serving, Jack Walters, Ted Kubitschek, Lou Burkhalter. They were all men in those days. May 6, 1955, the same. And for every first Sunday of every month, an account of communion that she had prepared. The careful recording, the detail the chronicling of every time bread was broken and wine was served. Who knew? Who knew? Suppose you was a little cat residing in a person's flat who fed you fish and scratched your ears. You'd notice him. Her name was Jeanette Williams. His name was Joseph, son of Barsabbas, son of Quiet, also known as Justice. What's your name? <laughs> 